the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to a very special episode of Tomb of Ideas. Why is it a very special episode, you may ask? Well, it's our 100th episode! Woo! And of course, I am, as always, James Hickson. And, and I'm Trey Lawson. That's right, folks. The Billy Loomis to my Stu Mocker. <laughs> Somebody's been binging some... 90s and early 2000s slashers. Yeah, yeah. I, I introduced a kid to them, and uh, he, they they very much, very much appreciate Stu and uh, Billy. But yeah, folks, cool. it is our 100th episode, and how appropriate that it falls on this day. If you're listening to day release, Halloween. That's right, because if you remember, way, way, way back when, in, we launched in <laughs> olden days. <laughs> we launched on a Halloween that happened that year to fall on a Wednesday, which was convenient for us. Yeah, <laughs> and how we ended up establishing our Wednesday release schedule. That's right, that's right. Which we mostly kept to... Uh, eh, more or less. Yeah. You may be asking yourself, but James and Trey, that was so long ago. How are you only to 100 episodes? <laughs> to which I respond, shut up, that's why. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, see, there's this, there was this thing called COVID. Yeah, which we both managed to get, amazingly. At various times. Yeah, various times. Not to mention just sort of the onslaught of, you know, work, life. life yeah. And that there's no money in this. None whatsoever. Unless any sponsors... Unless any sponsors are listening right now, in which in which case, please call us. We would definitely do this for money. You can reach us at tombofideas at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, we would definitely like a paycheck. We, we, we'll definitely go out and promote <laughs> things for you. Yes. Mm, mushroom yes. coffee. Mm, men's, men's health prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Gotta, gotta mm-hmm. love them. But... We have a very special episode planned for today. That's to right. celebrate both our anniversary and the spooky season. Ooh, spooky stuff, kids. <laughs> that, that was Count Floyd for any of our um, SCTV fans out there. <laughs> Not SCETV, which is more of more of a local thing for us. Right, right, right. Totally different vibe. <laughs> totally totally, totally different. different vibe. I actually, actually like it a lot more if it was... <laughs> it would... It, it would be hilarious if you flipped over to SCETV <laughs> and some floundering comic is like, how are you? <laughs> Mr. Knows It in a Dracula cape. <laughs> <sighs> Did I ever tell you that I actually t- talked to him once about who was the horror host for the 60s in South Carolina for WIS? Oh, no. Yeah. No. I tracked down a picture of the Gravedigger and they're like, oh performer unknown 
And I'm like, you know what? I live in Columbia. I could probably figure this out. And so <laughs> I called WIS, and the person there was like, well, the person you need to talk to is going to be Joe Pinner. Which, for people who don't know our area, Joe Pinner was most famous to our generation as Mr. Knows It, the local kids show host. You know, it used to be you weren't anybody if you hadn't been on Mr. Knows It's show at some point in the, in the <laughs> audience. And I wasn't anybody. No. Yeah, we were we were not the cool kids. But they're like, yeah, here's his number. He will probably remember. And he ended up did. He did remember who the, the Grave Digger was. That was our local horror host. And he remembered who the Grave Digger was and how where he ended up. And I looked him up and said, oh, yeah, he, he ended up in San Francisco and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, nice guy. That's cool. Yeah. Speaking of nice guys, we are taking a little trip up to Rutland, Vermont for the first, although not last, Marvel DC crossover. That's right. Because we are visiting with a dude named Tom Fagan and the... A Mm -hmm. writer and comic fan from Rutland, Vermont. Yeah. Who sort of started a, a local tradition. Right. So apparently in 1959, he witnessed what I guess was the first Rutland Halloween parade. And he realized, and he noticed, like, you know, they have a few people at the beginning, and they turn a corner and lose some more people. Then they turn another corner and lose more people. And by the time they got to a hill, they were just like, everybody's gone. And so he goes to the, the, the city commissioner, the recreational commissioner, and is like, hey, you know, this needs to be better organized, and, you know, maybe a theme, and... He, being a big comic fan as he was, proposed a Creature of the Night theme for next year's with Batman as the marshal of the parade. And the commissioner's like, well, you have great, lots of great ideas about this. Here, you're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how the Rutland Halloween parade became an annual tradition, focusing mainly around superheroes. Right. And it didn't hurt that Fagan had a 24-room mansion just outside Rutland. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently he was house-sitting this house. Like, it, right. it used to belong to the governor of Vermont. And then when that the last surviving member of that family died, it kind of fell into disrepair. And Fagan, who used to work for that family, said, Hey, I'm willing to take care of the place if you don't mind me living there. And they're like, okay, sure. So he ends up living there for a few years. And that sort of becomes a focal point of these Rutland Halloween celebrations, is that a lot of guests who would come from out of town would end up staying with Fagan because there were so many rooms in this place. Right. It first comes up when uh, Fagan writes into the Batman's letter page. Although, fun fact here, the first comics character to actually appear in the parade was that 1950. 1959 parade before Fagan took over, in which one child was dressed as Casper the Friendly Ghost. Right, right. But by 1964, Fagan is writing into the letters column for Detective Comics number 327, talking about how Batman has become the Grand Marshal for this parade in Vermont. By 1965, through his friendships with various fanzines, he's connecting with people like Roy Thomas. And Dave Keller. And and eventually people like Lynn Ween and, and Steve Englehart. Right, right. And eventually they start, you know, appearing in the parade in superhero costumes and then attending a huge party at Fagan's, again, mansion 
after the parade. Right. <laughs> so eventually... Art begins to imitate life? Yeah, as it were. And we start getting the Rutland Halloween Parade start appearing in the comic books. The first time this happens is one well, of the comics we're going to talk about today. So, we should probably talk about what we're going to talk about today. That's right. So, this is a little bit... It, it's going to sound a little more scattered than it really is. But the core of what we're talking about is the 1973, I guess, crossover? Yeah. 19th cover date. Ooh, that's a good question. It's confusing because one of the books has a December 72 cover date. But they were all on shelves in 73. Yes. Yes. So we're going to so so that's the core of what we're doing is a 73 crossover. But we are going to take a look back to the beginnings of the Rutland Parade appearing in comics. And that first happened in Avengers Volume 1 number 83. So that's where we're going to start. We're also going to look at, surprise, surprise, the first time the parade appeared in a DC comic. That was in Batman Volume 1, number 237. Mm -hmm. And that, we're going to skip over a little bit. There's a Defenders issue that we'll just, we'll mention in passing. But then we're going to get to the core of what we're talking about. And that's going to be Amazing Adventures, number 16, featuring the Beast. Just, yeah, yeah. Furry Blue Beast. Best version there is. Exactly. Not Genocidal Maniac. Uh, right, right. Justice League of America, number 103, and Thor, number 207. Mm-hmm. And then to kind of put a, a bookend on things, we'll look forward just a little bit and, and touch on some of the later appearances of the parade in comics. That's right. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Avengers Volume 1, number 83. Come on in. The revolution's fine. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Car Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lohr. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. Everybody's heading for Woolworth and Woolco to get set for Halloween. There's Star Wars costumes like Darth Vader and C-3PO. Superheroes like Spider-Man, Wonder Woman and Batman. There's the Shogun Warrior and many more, all at bare-bones prices. Only $1.97 to $3.99. And wrapped candy of every kind to cheer any spirit. All at the favorite Halloween haunts. Woolworth and Woolco. Welcome back, Toon Believers. Our first issue is The Avengers, number 83. Cover date on this one is December 1970. Writer is Roy Thomas. Artist is John Buscema. Inker is Tom Palmer. Letterer is Herb Cooper. Colorist is Uncredited. And Editor is Stan Lee. So, it's worth noting that, like, the issues we talk about this episode are, you know, cover dated, like, say, December 1970... Or January 1972 or whatever. Almost certainly these issues are coming out in October. Actually on newsstands right. in October. 
Right. This this is from the era where the cover date didn't really have a whole lot to do with when books were actually hitting store shelves. Exactly. Exactly. So this was called Come On In, The Revolution's Fine. And this is the infamous Lady Liberators issue where right. you have the Wasp showing up at Avengers Mansion after a long absence. But instead of the Avengers being assembled around their famous table... It is a collection of female heroes, including fellow... Ish. Hero-ish, yeah. Including <laughs> fellow Avenger Scarlet Witch, but also the Black Widow, Medusa, and the seeming first appearance of a new hero that we know very well from comics and other things, Valkyrie. Valkyrie explains that she is done taking orders from men and believes that it's time for the female heroes of the Marvel Universe to join together as one, which I'm kind of... She she also gives a bit of an origin story where she receives her powers through a combination of male chauvinism and lab experiments gone wrong. Yeah, as, as you do. <laughs> Just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> yep, yep. But they then go off to meet up with the rest of the Avengers, who apparently are all at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont coming there at the invitation of the, I guess, Grand Marshal of the parade, Tom Fagan, dressed up not in his traditional Batman costume, but instead as Nighthawk. Right. Which, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. To which Tom Fagan responded by having a Nighthawk costume made. Yes. I mean, as you do. I would. Yeah. Yeah. We then are introduced to some of the other partygoers, including Roy and Jeannie Thomas. And the Avengers appear on a parade float. In person, the Avengers 11th annual Halloween Rutland, Vermont parade. Unbeknownst though to the heroes lurking in the shadows, we have a motley collection of the masters of evil led by Claw, who are there to kidnap a local scientist from nearby Miskatonic University. <laughs> oh, Roy. <laughs> oh, Roy. But uh, th that's something we'll see a lot. A lot of these Rutland, Vermont stories have kind of like a subtle Cthulhu vibe to them. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like someone said to Roy Thomas, New England, and his response was, Oh, Cthulhu. <laughs> I mean, I would probably have the same response. Yeah. It's, it's a few years too early for Stephen King. Exactly, exactly. There's some fighty fight between the Masters of Evil and the Avengers, but the Avengers do manage to make quick work of them, aided by the sudden arrival of the, Lib the Lady Liberators. But just when the Avengers are thinking that the day is the fight is over, the Lady Liberators then attack the Avengers. And Valkyrie is revealed to be the Enchantress. Dun dun. Yeah, there. Uh, but don't worry, Scarlet Witch w wasn't really fooled by her, and she managed to make a bubble around the Enchantress, which kind of backfires her magic on her, and she is taken care of. So yeah, that's that's the introduction of the Rutland <laughs> Parade into comicdom. Yeah. First off, Scarlet Witch figures out that something's up with the fake Valkyrie at basically the same point that I do, which is when she when when Valkyrie calls her a winch. 
Yeah, this is not the Valkyrie we know from Marvel Comics. No, no, this is a disguise. Yeah, even though it's the first appearance I of the do, character. Right, but I do feel like it's sort of testing the waters for a kind of female counterpart to Thor. Because it's not long after this that Valkyrie shows up in Defenders, right? No, not long at all, I think. And it's it's kind of like how, remember when they brought Captain America back in Avengers, but before they brought Captain America back, they brought... Oh, they did that, that strange, strange Tales. Yeah, the acrobat. Story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 what, oh, God, what's his name? That one's not Zante, right? No, it's Zante. Is it Zante? I'm pretty sure it's Zante. <laughs> I love Zante. Zante! Someone should bring Zante. Zante! <laughs> Speaking of... I think the reason I like the character so much is because of the way Steve on the Fantastic Cast says it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so the parade itself, kind of minimal to the plot, right? It's it's mostly set dressing. Yeah, but it's fun set dressing. It is. I, I love the panels of, like... Guys in superhero outfits lounging around the mansion. Yes. Yes. It, it, it does seem like a little bit of fun. It says, hey, Roy Thomas has written his friends into the comic. Also, Roy Thomas wrote wrote his then-wife to have exactly the sense of humor that I would appreciate. The Avengers. Oh, wow. Which one of you is Mrs. Peel? <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. But yeah, all the imagery of the parade is just so much fun. Like the the float with Vision and and Quicksilver and Black Panther on it, I just yeah. I just love like the dyn- dynamism of this era of Marvel and like the use of colors and the Basima artwork is great. Ah, oh, it's so much fun. We don't talk about this era enough, and and the the art is really carrying this story because the the plot itself there's not much to it, right? I mean, no the. Like, it's probably the least effective version of the Masters of Evil. This roster is weird. It's the version that was Ultron's team. If you remember when Ultron did the whole Crimson Cowl thing, this was Ultron 5, I think. So it was his version of the Masters of Evil, except originally that version of the team had Black Knight on it. So we're missing Ultron, who was the leader, and we're missing Black Knight. And what that leaves you with is Claw, the Melter... Whirlwind, and is it Radioactive Man? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird team. Indeed. But then it's a weird lineup for the the Avengers, too. Yes. And this is, it's very much a transitional period. Like, we're not far from the Kree-Skrull War at this point, which is sort of a big turning point in the Avengers. Yes. Because, like, at this point, Clint is still Goliath. That is... Which is just yeah weird. Yep, which he would stop being Goliath in the Kree-Skrull War. Right, that's what I'm saying. We're not far from that sort of turning point of the Avengers kind of becoming closer to what most people think of when you say the Avengers. Yes. It's it's still a fun issue, though. It is a really fun issue. It is. And, and the, the action scenes are fun. The fight scenes are fun. Tom Fagan's cameo is fun with the Nighthawk outfit. He has to take the mask off to put his glasses on. And you talk about, we talk about Bashima's artwork here, and we talked about, you know, the, the people lounging around in costume. Bashima's artwork is so good here because the people lounging, lounging around in costume very easily could have just been, he draws the characters as usual. But, like, there's something off about them. And yeah. you, it, the, the, the costumes fit loosely. Um, 
that it, they look store bought rather than professional. Exactly. Exactly. Although, if you look at the costumes from this time, they had some really good costumes for mid seventies oh, yeah. cosplay. Yeah. Absolutely. I was looking at one of I forget if it was Lin Ween or might have been Lin Ween dressed as Morbius. Yep, it was Lin Ween. Yeah, because I think that gets referenced in an issue we're going to talk about. But, yes. But yeah, some of these costumes for for the sixties and seventies are really good. And, of course, in this issue, when, yeah, we do briefly see that that Roy and Jeannie Thomas are in their Spider-Man and Invisible Girl outfits, which is what they actually did wear when they went to the parade. Yeah, nice. There are photos of them in those costumes. Yeah, and apparently the Spider-Man costume and Invisible Girl costume were costumes made for an event. The event got canceled. And the costumes were just kind of sitting around in the office, and Roy Thomas was like, well, if no one's going to take use these, I'm going to take them home so they don't get just, just tossed in trash somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And he continued, like, he, he had that costume until fairly recently. I think the Spider-Man costume that Marvel had commissioned for that event that ended up in Roy's possession, I think it has since been sold to a private collector. Oops. But it remained in Roy's possession from the 60s until the mid-2000s. Wow. That is, wow. <laughs> Hope it's been washed. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, this is, I mean, it's a bit of an inauspicious start for the parade showing up in comics. Again, just insofar as it's basically that the big fight scene happens in the middle of the parade. Mm-hmm. Like this, this could have been set pretty much anywhere and you could have had something like this happen. The fun of it being this real event with this, this real guy running the show it is at this point very much an end joke. It's sort of a if you know you know kind of thing. It very much is, and it's like this is appealing to people who know people from the bullpen. This is it's very inside right. baseball kind of thing. Right, right. But but it helps that it's a good comic too. <laughs> it really does. And you know, I think at certain points like people are tuned into the fandom, tuned into the bullpen uh, to realize, "Oh wait, these are actual people like we've seen it in letter pages. Right, right. But... And speaking of good comics, that takes us to the next appearance of the parade in comics that we know of, which actually jumps universes a little bit. So we're going to hop on over. We don't get to do this often, so I'm enjoying it. Yeah. We're going to hop on over to the DC universe with issue number 237 of Batman Volume 1 cover date on this is December 1971, but it almost certainly came out around Halloween of 72. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Writers on this, it's written by Denny O'Neill, but with a special thanks to Bernie Wrightson and Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. That's a combination. Pencils by Neil Adams, inks by Dick Giordano, letters by John, Costa- John Costanza. The editor is Julius Schwartz. And this comic begins on Halloween in Rutland, Vermont, as the parade is about to start. Dick Grayson, the teen wonder, is there with his college friends. And while wandering about the parade, they notice some crooks attacking a man dressed as Robin. They try to help the guy, but Dick is sort of pulling his punches because he didn't want to give away that he's Robin. Yeah. And they end up getting taken out by the crooks, but the crooks panic because of the, the intervention and they leave. Dick suits up as Robin and follows their trail, 
where he finds a dead man dressed as Batman. Just then, Robin is attacked by a dark figure that appears to be the Grim Reaper, and he has to flee, ultimately falling into a river and being knocked unconscious. Uh, Meanwhile, Batman finds Robin, takes him to the house of parade organizer Tom Fagan, and a, a doctor who is present at Fagan's place checks out Robin. It turns out the doctor is, his name is Dr. Benjamin Gruner. He is a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust. It turns out that Batman has tracked a fugitive Nazi war criminal named Kurt Schloss to the Rutland Halloween Parade. And over the course of the investigation, Batman becomes convinced that the other criminals that were beating people up are trying to track down Schloss as well because Schloss had claimed to have hidden Nazi gold and and the the other ex-Nazis want their cut. And so the the ex-Nazis had killed the guy in the Batman suit and tried to kill the guy in the Robin suit, thinking they were the real things, because I guess they just don't know how Halloween works. Yeah. Okay. Batman takes out the the ex-Nazi crooks, but it turns out they had already planted a bomb in Schloss's car, and the bomb goes off killing him, which upsets Batman greatly, because even though he stopped the criminals, he did not stop their plot. Robin believes the case is solved, though, and Batman reminds him that this mysterious Reaper is still on the loose, and Batman turns his attention to that investigation. Batman finally tracks down the Reaper, and Batman reveals he's already figured out that the Reaper is actually Dr. Gruner, the survivor of the Holocaust, who was seeking revenge on the ex-Nazis, including Schloss. The Reaper attacks Batman, Batman turns the tide of the fight, the Reaper tries to make his escape, one of Dick's friends, Alan, gets in the way, the Reaper is about to kill the college student when he sees Alan's Star of David and becomes horrified at his actions. He stumbles over the edge of the dam and falls to his death, ending on a very somber note. So, why does the Nazi know that Batman's going to be in town? I don't think it's... Th- I think it's that they saw a guy dressed as... So, my read on it. The Batman and the Robin had gone to the parade together. The ex-Nazis saw a Batman and a Robin together and assumed they were the real thing and attacked. Again, not getting the idea of how Halloween works. Right. I mean, they're also sort of conspicuously, at Fagin's mansion, the only ones not in costumes. <laughs> it's just... Okay, sure, fine, why not? It's that's the weakest part of the story for sure. Yeah. What's weak what's not weak is the artwork. Oh my god. Oh, this is Neil Adams on all cylinders. Yeah. Wow. And I love the the two page spread. It's really three panels, but the it cuts across two pages of Dick and his friends walking by the parade floats with all the various people in superhero outfits. It, it's my background in our chat, right? Yeah. <laughs> my mind is the Avengers on the float from the previous issue. Right. But, like, apparently all of Dick's friends are, you know, comic book writers. Because, like, all, all these, <laughs> the, guy, the guys he's hanging out with are all comic book writers who we'll see elsewhere. And Right. So there is a short note on that page, actually. Any similarity to actual persons or places depicted in this tale is probably a stranger tale than you'd ever really believe. <laughs> oh, dear. So 
then we have Batman show up at Tom Fagan's party, which he's in the actual Batman costume now, which yes, which is which is fantastic. And apparently, there is going to be a statue of that moment you were just telling me about it in de- debuting in Rutland yes. this year. Of you know, yeah, I. I don't have a lot of details, but on the, I think it was on the the Roy Thomas Facebook page. It might have been John Cimino himself who who posted an article announcing that the the statue was going to be unveiled. Yep, Tom Fagan in Batman costume shaking hands with Cape Crusader, which is which I I do love I do love the line. Where'd you get the bat suit? The bat costume? It's great, better than mine, and you've got the muscles to go with it. Thanks. I exercise a lot. Yeah, it's it's. It's real good. Same as what we were talking about with the Marvel issue, Neil Adams just does such a good job of making the civilians in superhero outfits look like regular people in superhero outfits. Yes. Also, the representation of the characters, like, apparently, Lynn Ween and... Oh, goodness, I'm blanking on the other other character's creator's name. Actually did show up at the party as Cain and Abel. Oh, that's fun. So that's what they are in the comic. They're they're Cain and Abel. And, and of course, as you alluded to, just, just to get the names out there, the, the friends of Dick Grayson in this issue are Alan Weiss, Jerry Conway, and Bernie Wrightson. Right. That's... <laughs> Is it Bernie Wrightson uh, who's, just, Denny... who's just really into floats? I think so. <laughs> Denny O'Neill apparently shows up in the issue as well. I'm, I'm blanking on where. He's at the party talking to Thor. That's right. Because that's he's right. the one in the cowboy hat. I was hat. trying to find the page and I couldn't. Yes. Yes, he is. Yep, and you've got Roy Thomas in a Spider-Man costume in the back. Dressed as Webslinger Lad? Yes. <laughs> I'm dressed as Webslinger Lad. He's my idol. <laughs> no accounting for taste. <laughs> yep. Uh, this is such a fun issue. It really is. Um, and again, the, the parade functions similarly to how it does in the Avengers issue, right? Where yep. the the presence of characters in costumes is necessary for parts of the plot, but it could really be anywhere. You know, it's it's it the in jokes are fun for the people that know, but even if you don't know, it's just a spooky story taking place during a Halloween festival. Right. But they do make good use of the mansion here. I, I think that's probably the thing that stands out is, and a thing we'll see going forward is Fagan's mansion becomes as important as an aspect of the parade as the parade itself. Yep, and the dam behind it, because yes. there's a dam behind the mansion, which Denny O'Neill and Denny O'Neill just came so entranced with that he's like, oh, I'm going to put this in a story, and I'm going to take lots of pictures of Cindy Neil Adams, and that's what he did. Um, by, by the way, this mansion is the Proctor Clement House, which is now the Antique Mansion Bed and Breakfast, and has been added to the National Register of Historical Places since 1982, presumably for these Halloween parties. Yeah. I bet that's a fun place to stay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be. It is interesting, the the Marvel characters that, that are present as Halloween costumes here, because, again, Roy as Spider-Man... Totally makes sense. You've got a Thor there with, like, a regular claw hammer on his belt, which is a lot of fun. (laughs) The one that stood out to me, I think there was a Captain America on the float. Yeah. Yeah, I see him there. The one that stood out to me is just weird, though. Of all characters, Havoc is there. 
Because Neil Adams designed Havoc. That's right. Yes, he did. Yep. So, so of course, if he's going to put an X-Men character, it's going to be one he designed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, there you go. Just That's funny. It is real funny. And they, you still they're having a ball with it. And it's still a good story. Yeah. Well, and, and like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a... Despite the fun of the middle section, it is a downer of an ending, which, I mean, it's O'Neill Adams, so that makes sense. Yeah. So, there, if, if there's any one aspect of it that I don't like, there's this whole thing that Batman thinks he has to save the Nazi's life, mm. which my philosophy is always be blowing up Nazis. So, I can see Batman wanting the Nazi to go to prison, to stand trial. Mm-hmm. I don't see... Once he's dead, though, I, I think you can regret not being able to save him while also being glad he's no longer a threat to anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, because saving him would have just meant presenting him with a different, more formalized version of justice. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think Batman is maybe being a little too hard on himself there. <laughs> yeah. If Nazis want to blow up other Nazis... So well, no, 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 no. He is not, he's not a Nazi. He's a, he's a concentration camp survivor. Oh, oh, so I thought you were talking about the, the guy whose car blows up. That guy's a Nazi. Okay, yeah, you're right. So, but. It's at the end. Well, there's. At the end, the, the Holocaust survivor dies. Yes. Okay. So, the, that's the thing, is basically what you have in the middle section is ex-Nazis hunting another ex-Nazi because they want to know where the gold is. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, this this it, no, I, I had to read it like twice to, to like piece that together because it, it is a little bit convoluted. A little bit, which is the name of the game for this crossover, honestly. As we'll talk about. <laughs> right, uh, right. Which I think we should probably means we should move on. Yeah, no, again, fun, but but the, the parade is still mostly just sort of set dressing for a single done in one story. Yeah, that that takes us ahead a little bit in time. Although actually this one probably was on stands I don't know. Cover dates are confusing in this era. There, we're going to mostly gloss over this one because it's not that important. But in Marvel feature number two, which was written by Roy Thomas, drawn by Ross Andrew with inks by Sal Bashema, letters by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee, we had a Defenders story, which involves worshippers of Dormammu on Bald Mountain in Rutland, Vermont, trying to summon their master. And Dormammu demands that his followers make a sacrifice on Halloween and that this will facilitate Dormammu able to physically manifest on Earth. Dormammu also demands that Doctor Strange is used as the sacrifice. And so Dormammu's followers attack Strange in the Sanctum Sanctorum in New York and he is subdued and captured and Wong and Clea end up summoning the rest of the Defenders to rescue Doctor Strange. So they travel to Rutland. Uh, of course, the Halloween parade is happening because it's Rutland. And uh, and the Defenders fight the worshippers of Dormammu. Meanwhile, Strange confronts Dormammu in the Dark Dimension. The portal is sealed. There's an explosion. The Defenders escape. There's really not much to it. Like the, It's the least Rutlandy of these crossovers in that the Bald Mountain stuff, like, that's a real place. But it's a little bit removed from the events of the actual celebration, right? We get a few panels and pages 
where Roy and Jeannie Thomas once again arrive at Tom Fagan's mansion. But it's actually before the Halloween festivities have begun, so nobody's in costume yet. Mm-hmm. They're all still setting up. And and Fagan mostly is there to give some exposition about how there are all of these weird, creepy uh, legends and, and supernatural goings-on in and around Rutland. That's pretty much it. We do get a cup we do get a glimpse of the parade proper as Clea and Clea Namor and Bruce Banner are making their way to the mountain. But but it's mostly just sort of in passing. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't read this one because it wasn't on our reading list. No, I, I left it out because it, it wasn't on the first list I looked at either. And I can sort of see why. Again, you've got a one page well, call it one and a third page cameo by Roy Thomas and and Jeannie Thomas with Tom Fagan giving some exposition. And then you've got maybe, maybe one, one and a half pages of Halloween parade. That's about it. The rest could be said anywhere. It could be Mount Wondegore, you know? Yeah. I think part of the reason for this is that Roy Thomas is, was kind of entranced by the fact that there was a bald mountain in Rutland, Vermont. Right. And, and and he's thinking of the night on Bald Mountain and, and all of that. And sure. No, I it, it it's not a bad Defenders story. Yeah. Which it's just there, if we're. Yeah. Night on Bald Mountain, which is probably playing on this right now because it's public domain. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a fine Defenders story, although it's really more of a Doctor Strange story with the Defenders showing up for the assist. But but the Rutland stuff is sort of secondary. You know, you could take out those panels and pages and the rest of the story would work just fine. Yeah. It's... I can't say anything because I've read it. But that takes us to the main event, as it were. That's right. So we're going to go ahead and take another quick break and we'll come back with our look at Amazing Adventures number 16 featuring The Beast right after these messages. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitist, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. In just a moment, we will return with another exciting adventure featuring a guest star from the galaxy of super superheroes. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. We're continuing our journey through the comics appearances of the Rutland Halloween Parade with sort of the the centerpiece of our discussion, uh, which is a three-issue crossover beginning with Amazing Adventures Volume 2, number 16, featuring The Beast. This story is written by Steve Englehart, with pencils by William Robert Brown and Marie Severin, inks by Frank McLaughlin, Colors by Glennis Ween, letters by Charlotte Jenner, Charlotte Jetter, and the editor is Roy Thomas. One Must Die, The Dark of Halloween. 
which is not the actual title of the story. It's just on the cover. The cover, or sorry, the title is, And the Juggernaut Will Get You If You Don't Watch Out. Ooh. We begin with Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, Lynn Ween, and his wife Glennis uh, on the road to Rutland, Vermont, when they are stopped by the beast in the middle of the road. He leaps into the trees, and they are left wondering what exactly they saw. Jokes about King Kong are made, and they're all a little bit worried about what they're getting themselves into. Meanwhile, the beast reflects on, I guess, the previous issue. Yes, previous issue where Vera had basically recruited him, that she needed someone who was an expert in mutation and gene splicing and such. And so he is accompanying her north, and they have stopped off in Rutland. In a rubber mask, Um, a rubber Hank McCoy mask. Yes, yes. So this is a point where the beast is fully blue and furry, and he goes out and lives a normal life by wearing a rubber mask and rubber person gloves and a big boxy suit to cover his fur. Yeah, yeah. It's real weird. Real weird. Real weird. (laughs) But Hank and Vera are able to hitch a ride with our favorite comics creators. They, lots of jokes are made about how the car is barely limping along. Apparently the muffler fell off. The heater died. I've had cars like that. They ask if, right, right. I think we all have. <laughs> they, they feel like, like Hank McCoy seems familiar to them, but they can't quite place him. <laughs> and as they drive away, a portal opens and Juggernaut falls out. <laughs> <laughs> Juggernaut celebrates his return and his triumph over all things physical and mystical, only for the portal to open again and suck him right back in. <laughs> so the Juggernaut is flying through a void in time and space. And a mysterious voice. Shades shades uh, of Ashley Williams. <laughs> <laughs> a, a mysterious voice reminds him of all the times that he has lost. <laughs> and then shows him the beast in Rutland and basically suggests that in order to return to Earth permanently, he needs to defeat the beast. This is that little known Marvel Cosmic Entity exposition talking to him here. Right. right. <laughs> we, as Infinity, there must also be exposition, I think. Right. <laughs> we cut back to Rutland, where our comic creator friends have arrived with Hank and Vera, complaining once again about how awful the car is. Mm-hmm. And Hank and Vera split off from the comics creators because, again, they're actually trying to get further north. This is just a stop on the road for them. But we get a little more information Vera has told Hank that whatever is coming could bring about the end of the world and she needs a specialist in mutation in order to stop it. We then cut back to the comics creators. Now Glennis Ween is in her Supergirl outfit, slightly modified because it's a Marvel comic. Yep. Instead of an S, it's got um, a little G. Right. I think they do refer to her as Power Girl at one point. Yeah. That might be in a later issue. Well, it's because Power Girl had not shown up in... Right. DC Comics, yeah. In DC. So it was right. fun. That was not a thing yet. Nope. Yeah. Um, um, they run into Hank and Vera again. Uh, they invite Hank and Vera to join them at Tom's mansion for the party. Um, but 
they say they're actually trying they're trying to get to Canada it's urgent um, and just then the juggernaut once again pops out of a portal in the middle of Rutland Vermont yep he smashes through the superhero float in the parade charges toward Hank McCoy who I don't think he realizes the beast at this point I think he's just charging but before he can get any closer the portal opens up and he's sucked back out again he like he 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 senses that beast is somewhere nearby Right. That's the thing is he keeps he keeps getting this impression that Beast is there, but he can't identify him. No, because the rubber mask is just so convincing. Right. Right. Well, the thing is, the last time Juggernaut saw him, I think he was he still had a human appearance. So the rubber mask probably looks more like what he expects than anything else. It's just I love I love how good rubber masks are in comics. Well, I mean, so Batman has rubber masks so good he can wear them over his cowl. Yes, and still I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> like, like almost all the early appearances of Matches Malone were basically that. <laughs> so Juggernaut vanishes, and in the chaos, apparently Glennis Ween disappeared. So everyone spreads out to search for her. Meanwhile, Hank uses the distraction to take off his person suit and roam around as the Beast. Thankful that for one day out of the year in this one town, nobody will care much that a blue furry beast is wandering around. On the outskirts of town, Juggernaut appears once again, and he and the Beast fight. Beast is unable to get his helmet off, and so he makes a run for it. He leads Juggernaut through a power substation, which doesn't slow him down at all. Beast jumps into the water, hoping that Juggernaut will sink, but it backfires because not only is Juggernaut's power keeping him afloat, but it's the first time Beast has jumped in water since getting his blue fur, and now the water is slowing him down because he's waterlogged. Um, But Beast gets enough distance uh, climbing the, the nearby cliffs that he's able to put his person suit back on again, and as Hank McCoy decides to blend in at Tom Fagan's party. Um, Tom Fagan greets him once again in the Nighthawk costume, and uh, while mingling, the party is disrupted by the Juggernaut. Hank runs upstairs, Juggernaut follows, Beast shocks Juggernaut by ripping off his mask, revealing his beast-like form, which Juggernaut has already seen, so I'm not sure why it's a surprise, but it surprises Juggernaut, allowing Beast to rip off the helmet, which apparently removes Juggernaut's powers and dooms him. Juggernaut rushes outside, steals the the comics creator's car. Inglehart. Yeah, it's Inglehart's car. He steals Inglehart's car. Beast leaps in and knocks him back out of the car. They continue fighting. As they fight, Juggernaut ages uncontrollably, and he is eventually sucked back into the portal, where he is of course, going to die. Meanwhile, Linus Ween shows up out of nowhere, says she doesn't remember what was going on, but she thinks she had a good time, and the party continues as the beast stands alone on a cliff. But to answer the question... So first off, this is a fun issue. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I actually haven't read a lot of Amazing Adventures beast stories, but if they're like this, I could read more. Yeah. (laughs) The artist, Bob Brown, does a good job here with the artwork. His beast is very feral. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat... Sort of like, gorilla-like in terms of the body. Yeah, and, like, 
feature wise, been a little bit more like say Werewolf by Night ish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see some plug in the face. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's good stuff. The Juggernaut is seemingly tiny. <laughs> he's also very egg shaped in this issue. Yeah, like he's very round. Yes, which you know, I, I'm guessing maybe being in another dimension has warped him in some way for an extended period of time because there is really no way that the beast should be a, a match for the juggernaut by himself yeah no not really and also since when does he become powerless without his helmet i thought that the helmet just blocked telepaths yes yes that is the case like the powers come from the gem that he absorbed yep but speaking of which i i asked a question and then no prize my own answer when I was reading who is the mysterious voice commanding Juggernaut to do all these things the the issue doesn't say my no prize is that it's probably Sidorak okay because in later comics Sidorak would communicate to him and give him instructions and even take away his powers when he wasn't being appropriately chaotic and violent interesting like the times he's tried to be a hero Sidorak has been like no not like that gotcha gotcha so we should talk about some of the costumes we see at the party and at the parade. Yeah, yeah. We get, let's see, a Superman. Yes. A, a surprisingly copyright-violating Superman back there with, the, <laughs> with, with, with the Superman symbol actually drawn. We get, I think in the next page, sorry, later panel, Flash Gordon. Yep. Down there. We also get, of course... I believe that is Roy Thomas and Jeannie as, yep, yep, they even mentioned it. It says, anytime Jeannie, I said, this is the first time I ever saw the visible girl with dimples. Thanks, Roy. Let's listen to my next, never mind that, Roy. Let's to my next night nurse plot. So that Roy and Jeannie Thomas are there. I believe that is a young lady dressed in the Nick Cardi Wonder Girl outfit. That's right, yep. There's a Doctor Strange and a Hulk in the background at one point. Yep. Let's see. Uh, I see a Medusa. Yep. And let's see um, the parade. And of course the, the Roy and Genie appearance is footnoted, editor noted, whatever, with reminding us of Avengers eighty three and future feature number two, which we just talked about. Yes. Yes. And all in all, a lot of good little cameos here. Yeah. And and because because of the structure of the story and maybe because other stories had already been set there, the setting of Rutland feels more integral to the plot. Yes. Up to and including the return of the dam. Right, right. The same one that Batman chased the Reaper on in the Batman issue. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fun. It's, you know, it, it's, it's amazing adventures. So it's not one of Marvel's top books, but Englehart tells a good story here. It's, it's, Despite the quibbles about sort of what exactly the deal with Juggernaut is here, <laughs> it's just a fun action romp. Yes, and surprisingly enough, not the first time in this crossover someone tries to steal Stephen Eaglehart's car. Nope, that is going to become a bit of a running gag. Because we're going to go ahead and move on now to our next issue, Jumping Universes to... <laughs> Justice League of America, number 103. Cover date on this one is December 1972. Of course, coming out in October. Writer is Lynn Ween. Artist is Dick Dillon. Inker is Dick Giordano. Letterer is Ben Oda. Colorist is 
uncredited because apparently they didn't credit the colorist on DC side of things. And editor, but don't tell him about this, is Julius Schwartz. <laughs> so, we are greeted with a site we don't... Well, first off, we arrive at Rutland, Vermont the night before the Halloween parade where the denizens of Vermont, including Tom Fagan and the Phantom Stranger, are assembled to see old Mistress Sarah speak to the spirits so they can tell her a dark secret in return. The names of those who will die within the next 24 hours. And at a crossroads, there is this old old hag banging her stick on the ground, and as she bongs the stick, she calls out names. Superman, Flash, Hawkman, Green Lantern, Batman, Green Arrow. With each bell tolled, these names I say of those who will die by the end of day. We then go to a site not often seen on this podcast, the JLA Satellite, orbiting the Earth as the rest of the JLA wait for the arrival of the last of their number. We have Superman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Hawkman, and Flash all waiting for the arrival of Batman who has, they presume, called them there, but he says, no, I didn't call you. And then a stranger appears from the shadows. In fact, it's the Phantom Stranger say, I did. And this is where the Phantom Stranger says, hey, I need you guys to go to Rutland, Vermont, because your old foe, Felix Faust, is running amok. We then go to Rutland, Vermont, where... Steve Englehart and Jerry Conway are retrieving Steve Englehart's <laughs> muffler to put to put in the trunk of the car because it has fallen out of the car. So I believe this part happens slightly before the beast part. Right, right. So, yeah. They then are zooming along, presumably right before they meet Hank McCoy. Meanwhile, the Justice League are searching the town of Rutland for any sign of Felix Faust. And Batman says, hey, chums, I believe there is someone here in town who could, might be of help to us. And so they arrive around the same time as Jerry Conway, Sting of Englehart, Glynis Ween, Lynn Ween, to Tom Fagan's party. And Tom Fagan, of course, has met Batman before. Which I didn't. I didn't know he knew he that he had met the real Batman. But you know, okay, fine. Well, so I think all I can figure is that at some point it comes up because Batman does bring Robin there to get treated. Yeah. So Tom Fagan in his second costume of the night is is because <laughs> he 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 is he was when we last saw him last issue he was wearing the Nighthawk costume. Right. Is now dressed as Batman. And Batman explains that, hey, we're tracking somebody down here, and we just want to hang out at your party for a little bit. Which, you know, they're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And they even ha- put them on a parade float created by Green Lantern. They actually don't have a float for them. Green Lantern manifests the float. <laughs> yes, which is kind of great. Like, if you've got Green Lantern there, have them make a float. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um... By the way, back there in the back, is that the Earth 2 Robin? I can't... It, it looks like it could be. Looks like it could be. Which, I thought this was too early for Earth 2 Robin, but okay. Um, so we have uh, the Justice League on a float, very similar to the one that the Avengers had 
two years prior, because remember, that was the 11th annual parade, and this is the 13th annual parade. By the way, the parade, I believe this year, is celebrating its 62nd annual parade. Yeah, this thing's still going on. Still going on, guys. It's on October 29th this year, after taking a few years off for COVID, like everything else. But, of course, as they're going along the parade route, all the other parade floats disappear. And all the other costume people disappear as well. The Justice League decide to search around to see what's going on because everybody seems to be in a daze. As they do so, the Flash is attacked by Captain America, Supergirl, and Adam Strange. Excuse me, excuse me. This is very much the non-copyright infringing character of Commando America. Yes, with his trash can lid shield. <laughs> And a lowercase a. Yes. So apparently, Felix Faust's magics, at least we think it's Felix Faust's, have caused the denizens of the town to gain the powers and perceived evil personalities of their costume counterparts. So Glennis Ween has become Supergirl, for example. She fights Hawkman in the sky above, while... Flash takes on Captain America, sorry, Commando America, a legally distinct and <laughs> legally distinct Commando America, and they get their butts handed to them. Meanwhile, the Phantom Stranger to think, oh, you've come here to help us. No, I'm going to pick this thing off the ground and leave you to, like, pass the fuck out here. Bye. Deuces. <laughs> we then see Webslinger Lad fighting Batman in the trees of the forest, which I, I presume this is Roy Thomas. I, I have to assume so. I have to presume this is Roy Thomas fighting Batman. Which, <laughs> okay, cool. Roy is then taken out by Green Lantern, but Thor shows up and stumbles around a good bit. Uh, apparently this Thor is very much more of the Love and Thunder variety than, <laughs> say, Kenneth Branagh Thor. Right. But Batman is then taken out by the surprise appearance of... The Boy Wonder Robin? Well, no, it's somebody in a costume, but the surprise knocks Batman out. And as he slips into unconsciousness, the Phantom Stranger comes along and picks up another trinket. There's some boasting from Felix Faust. Our comic creators wander around still looking for Glynis, the missing Glynis Ween. And then some dude in a big cheese costume... Fights <laughs> Superman. So this is a weird point for Captain Marvel. Because... Very. Uh, Mar DC owns the rights to Captain Marvel now. But he's not part of Earth-1 continuity. No. And he has not yet appeared in Marvel Comics, as it were. Sorry, no, DC right. Comics. Excuse me. DC Comics, DC. as it were. In fact, there is an ad earlier in the comic for DC's Christmas gift to you. Shazam is coming. So I'm presuming this is the first appearance of Captain Marvel in DC Comics. I think previous to this, like, say, Captain Thunder had shown up. I think there was, like, a Superman story or something where they tested the waters with it. Yeah. And, but again, they I guess they don't want to make it straight up Captain Marvel. We then have a cosplayer playing Jay Garrick Flash, which is fantastic. Love it. Love to see it. Who is taken out by Green Arrow. But they are soon all taken out when the cosplayer yells Shazam 
and a lightning bolt <laughs> takes out Superman. That is fantastic. And I think a few years before, other writers would do the same thing. Yes. And of course, very cleverly avoids actually showing what the magic was. Yes, yes. Because again, this is not technically Captain Marvel, because that guy's showing up, I guess, for Christmas. <laughs> but so the Justice League lays defeated on the ground, and we are works it's explained to us why Phantom Stranger has been collecting these trinkets. We have Green Arrow's hat, a batarang, Hawkman's emblem, I think maybe Superman's belt buckle. They have been collected to satisfy the spell. To be like, okay, I'm not sure how this works exactly. Like, these trinkets satisfy the spell, so, like, technically these guys have died, I guess. But in fact... the, the What I got was that by collecting a personal possession from each of them without it being freely given, that basically Phantom Stranger was able to do a counterspell. Okay, sure. Glynis, so Felix Faust realizes he's been defeated when he's come upon by Lynn Ween, Steve Englehart, and Jerry Conway. Deciding he will not be taken by those such as them, he jumps from the window of the house in, into Steve Englehart's car and steals Steve Englehart's car. <laughs> Glennis Ween told you it'd be a running gag. Yep. Glennis Ween then shows up, sands her blonde wig. I'm not really sure what's gone on. Not having a real memory of what's going on. Very similar to her appearance at the end of the Amazing Adventures story. And then we have, I don't know, the, the Justice League fighting some de- demons just for good measure. Meanwhile, somewhat later, Felix Faust is stopped by the police for a faulty muffler but of course he thinks oh the police know it's me I better give up the ghost and it ends with the Justice League all having a good laugh and deciding that hey Phantom Stranger should join the Justice League and they have a vote and decide yes Phantom Stranger is going to join the Justice League but of course when they go turn around and turn Phantom Stranger this he's disappeared <laughs> this is a fun so one. it is it's a little sitcom-y at times Yes. But it's fun. I love the the guy in the Golden Age Flash outfit with the colander for a helmet. Yes. Really nice. I love the conceit of, like, the people at the party gaining the powers of their costume counterparts. It is a lot of fun. Yes. And, and a very, again, good use of the setting to be more than just window dressing. Yes. Yes. And and as as you suggested in your summary, this is happening roughly concurrently with the beast fighting Juggernaut. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like all of that's on the same night. Yep. So like Juggernaut tried to steal his car earlier, failed. Then Felix Faust steals the car and drives off. Eventually failed. Yes. But this will not be the last we see of this car in this crossover. No. No. Now, now, one thing I do want to just... I don't know. I'm I'm not the biggest Hawkman guy. I like Hawkman fine. But since when does he talk to birds? Wait, when did that happen? I missed that. So there's... When, when he goes in to save Flash... This is page 13. Okay. Wheat, wheat, protect Flash from the evil one, my friends. And a bunch of birds swarm around Commando America. Like he's Aquaman or something. Wow, you're right. Wow. I completely missed that. Commando America, yeah. Yeah. 
but but yeah, just that that part was weird. But uh, also, just as an aside, in a story that begins with the prophesied death of the various members of the Justice League, mm-hmm. this lineup of the Justice League within 25 to 30 years all of them would be dead except for Batman. Yeah. At least once. Yeah, it's like not like old the old hags like no not 25 hours 25 years <laughs> well because superman dies in 92 right yep. barry allen died in 86 right yep hawkman has died over and over and over again but he's gone for most of the the early 90s mm-hmm. hal jordan dies uh, as parallax ends up becoming specter yeah green arrow died before zero hour think it was when when is when connor hawk took over yeah end of the mike grell run i think so yeah so all all except for batman eventually do die at least once which is funny yeah but yeah i think the use of phantom stranger here is fun a lot of fun doesn't always make total sense but it's appropriate for a halloween story yeah so is your it's your favorite phantom stranger story the one where he takes batman to the other earth and he prevents the death of the waynes Oh, sort of the It's a Wonderful Life, but for Batman. Yeah. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I Phantom Stranger is one of those guys who I enjoy when he shows up. I wouldn't call myself a huge fan. I like his appearances in, like, Books of Magic and stuff like that. Yeah. It's... he He's a good character. Like, it's interesting. He first appeared in the, in the 50s, and his, his fashion kind of evolved up to that point. But it gets stuck right somewhere mid midway around the seventies, right around the same time that you know Neil Adams draws him for the first time. <laughs> right, the 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 high collar and the hat covering the eyes and the gold chain, like that, just sticks. Yeah, it was like, nope, that one's good. Keeping that. Like even when they tried to redo him for New Fifty Two, which was bad, <laughs> he basically kept that look. Oh, something something related to New Fifty Two was bad. I'm shocked. It was the worst. The worst part of the New 52 was the Trinity of Sin, which I believe involved Phantom Stranger, The Question, and Andorra? Something like that. There were three characters involved. It it, it ruined the question for a while. It took a, it took a long time for them to fix the question. Phantom Stranger came out a little bit better, but still wasn't great. Wow. Okay, then. It was bad. But but this comic is good. This comic's um, real good. And I love that Glennis Ween is like integral to the plot (laughs) and and it does i mean you know you can sort of pick apart at the seams a little bit the the because it's an intercompany crossover where officially the creators are not allowed to collaborate across books like things don't line up exactly but they line up well enough that if you know what's going on it's a lot of fun yeah so like the part where they pick up their mufflers before they meet hank mccoy the part where they arrive at the right. party is after they've dropped off Hank McCoy in after. town. And then... Right. And then all the stuff with Glennis is in the midst of the beast fighting Juggernaut and everyone else is looking for him. Yeah. So, and then, of course, I guess there's an alternate theory in the next comic? Mm. Yeah, I think so. We can we can sort of... We can get into that. Yeah. That sort of takes us to our next issue which is jumping back to the other universe where we started. We're back in in Marvel continuity. Good old 616. That's right. And we're looking at Thor, Volume 1, number 207. Cover date on this is January of 1973. Writer is Jerry Conway. 
penciler John Bashema, inks by Vince Coletta, colors by Glennis Ween, letters by Denise Vladimir, and the editor is Roy Thomas. And this issue, our title is Fire Sword, and we open, <laughs> surprise, surprise, at the Rutland Halloween Parade. I'm shocked. Uh, <laughs> and, and Steve Englehart and Lynn Ween and Glennis Ween are once again at the parade enjoying themselves. This seems to be maybe a little bit later because they're leaving sort of after things are over. Or they're headed to the, I guess they're headed to the mansion again. Headed to the party. They get, yeah, they're headed to the party. So they get into Steve's car, still with the, the missing muffler, and they limp their way to Tom Fagan's mansion. Tom Fagan now back in the Nighthawk costume. Where, where Tom in his Nighthawk costume welcomes them in. And it seems like something's a little bit off about Tom. Glennis says he seemed distant. And meanwhile, uh, I guess upstairs, a mysterious figure calls off his dogs, Satan and Diablo. And Tom Fagan refers to this guy almost like a, a sort of master. He says, all is as you commanded, all is well. Meanwhile, Thor is flying through the night with the Lady Sif. And I always forget this other character's name. Hildegard. Hildegard. Yeah. Not up on this era of Thor. No. So Thor, Sif, and Hildegard land in the forest. And suddenly emerging from the trees, the Absorbing Man, who has just been hanging around absorbing the power of of oak trees. Yeah. He attacks Thor. He, he gets the drop on him. Sif wants to jump in and fight, which seems... Like, it would be helpful, but Hildegard says no, Thor has to do this himself. So Thor and Absorbing Man fight. Thor throws his hammer at Absorbing Man, which is kind of the wrong thing to do. Bad tactics on Thor's part, because Absorbing Man immediately absorbs the power of Mjolnir and uses it against Thor. Yep. They continue They continue fighting, neither side really gaining the upper hand. And meanwhile, back in Rutland, our favorite comic creators are... Having a pre-parade snack, Len, I guess. Is it Len? Yeah, I think it's Len, who has eaten four burgers so far. It's a pre-parade snack, but they didn't they just come from the parade? Yeah, this one's a little bit jumbled up. Yeah. And Glennis is already in her costume. Len is not yet in his Morbius costume. No, we, which has been mentioned. We don't get to see the Morbius costume in the comics, but we've seen we have seen it in real uh, life, which is glorious. Yes. Yes. Alongside, I believe, Marv Wolfman as Aquaman, and I forget who else is in the picture. It's it's great. And Glennis Ween goes to the restroom or to powder her nose or whatever and disappears. And so they all split up to look for her. Meanwhile, the fight continues. Thor is able to grab Absorbing Man by the ankle and throw him into the sky. And then he launches himself skyward with Mjolnir, and the fight continues some more. Thor throws Absorbing Man into the water, which forces Absorbing Man to take on the properties of water, seemingly killing him. Then Loki appears. Yep, because it's a <laughs> Thor comic. Yep, and Loki calls on his wolves, Satan and Diablo, and hint, mm -hmm. and they attack Thor, and Thor summons a whirlwind, which blows them away, and just then Loki reveals that he has absorbed the souls of a bunch of the parade goers 
and forged those souls into a mystic fire sword, which he thinks will be equal to Thor's Mjolnir. And so they fight. Loki manages to burn Thor's arm with the sword. Sif wants to help, but once again is held back. And just then, Carnilla, Queen of the Norns, appears and offers to help Thor, but only if Lady Sif will agree to help her with a quest. Mm -hmm. First, Sif resists. The fight continues. Loki has the upper hand and is about to win. And just then, Lady Sif gives in and says that she will agree to aid the Queen of Norns in her quest. And so the Queen summons a thunderstorm which helps Thor regain his power. It distracts Loki. Thor summons Mjolnir. And as they fight, with each swing of the hammer, lightning strikes, and Loki is left blinded. Loki runs off into the night, and as he runs out, someone has stolen Steve Englehart's car. So that's driving away. And Loki Loki falls off. Loki tries to hitch a ride, yeah. Yes, Loki is trying to get in the car as it's driving away, but it does not stop. Loki trips and falls, seemingly falls in off of a cliff, but no one really quite sees what happens or even remembers. Yep. And Thor returns to Hildegard, only to find that the Lady Sif has left with Carnilla. And of course, that car being driven by Felix Faust. Right, right. So this is happening between those events. So is it Felix Faust controlling everyone? Or is it Loki controlling everyone? Right. So this is what I call the plausible deniability issue. Yeah. Because this is the issue that basically allows the creative team of Amazing Adventures to say, no, we have no idea what DC is up to. We were tying into this Thor issue. Yeah. (laughs) I like to believe it is a team up between Loki and Felix Faust. Or maybe Loki was secretly empowering Felix Faust. That makes sense. So he used the souls to form the soul sword. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It all fits together. No prize. Vaguely. Yeah. And yeah, I think the thing with this, this issue is a little more scattered. You kind of have to, bits of it take place before the events of the other issues. Bits of it take place after the events of the other issues. This is really the issue where gaps are filled in. Yeah. It's also the one where, where the superhero action is the most separated from the parade stuff. Yes. Like, Thor does not attend the parade. Right, right. He's just in the woods outside of Rutland fighting all these people. Right. Like, we get the image of the people whose souls were stolen, but that's as close to the parade as he gets. Yeah. And notably, all except for Glennis, all of those people are in Marvel costumes. Yes. But again, we get the return of the G. Yes. It's, 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 it's not... It, it's Power Girl. Uh, and it's also... It's also not the... Pentagon. It's a little more curved at the bottom. Like like the the shape of the shield is different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's fun though. It, it it's it's a good sort of wrap up to the events of these issues. Yeah, it's it's a. F- he must have been following the sounds of the car. <laughs> it's a really fun crossover. It's it's cheeky. It is. It's it's what that's what it is. It's cheeky. It's a cheeky little crossover. That's exactly it. Very much so. And you know. Uh, author inserts in superhero comics don't always work, but here I think they they very cleverly walk the line between 
making the scenes with their characters matter. Mm-hmm. Like, it's important to the plot. You can't just take it out yeah. the way you could in that Defender book. Yeah. But they're not the stars. They're not the center of attention. What is your favorite author in certain comics? Maybe mm, Grant Morrison showing up in Animal Man. Okay. That That's probably it. I think my favorite is Stan and Jack getting turned away at... At the, at the wedding. wedding. Yeah, Reed and Sue's wedding. Oh, that's classic. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. That is good. I think there's also an old Superman where Superman meets Kurt Swan. That's that I I, I vaguely remember liking the art in that one. Nice. Nice. Oh, well, this isn't a self insert, but of course, the Fantastic Four meeting God. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course God is Jack Kirby, which is my own personal theology. Uh <laughs> Hail to the king. Yeah. It's... But this crossover, it's very much kids getting away with stuff. Right. No, they are... You can hear all... Of, you, you can hear Jerry Conway and Steve Englehart and, and Lynn Ween just, like, giggling the whole time they're working on these issues. Not, naughty boys getting away with something. It is... <laughs> it's, it's great fun. And I think right. you're right that the weakest link in the crossover is the mighty Thor. Yeah, just in the, it's a it's a little bit more like that early Avengers issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't. That's the one that, aside from the the scenes with Inglehart and and the Weens, like it could really sort of be said anywhere. Yeah. And again, the, all of the action takes place in a nondescript forest. Yeah. Like, if that fight had taken place on the dam or something like that, like, place it closer to where the festivities are, like, maybe then it would feel a little more a part of things. Yeah, although the dam, if they set it on a dam, they would run into... There's already a fight They, they run into Beast and Juggernaut, which... I guess that's the that's the problem, is that the other issues already used all the notable geography, yeah, right? Yeah, I would actually love if, like, he was just fighting the Absorbing Man... And they ran into the Beast and Juggernauts fight. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> team up. It's a, it's a little bit of, this isn't a great movie, but one of my favorite gags in a spoof movie ever is Hot Shots Part 2, where Charlie Sheen is on a boat going one way and Martin Sheen's on a boat going the other way. And as they pass each other, they point at each other and shout, I loved you in Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> Calling out, just... Yeah, I knew I knew what clip you were talking about as soon as you said it because, of course, it, it's making the so, it made the social media rounds not too long ago. Right, right. <laughs> not a great movie, but it was a staple on cable back in the day. Yeah, in case anybody thought that, like you know, the scary movie people invented off the wall parody films. Go watch a Mel Brooks movie sometime. Yeah, go watch Airplane. Uh, or or Airplane. Yeah, absolutely. Or or the Naked Gun. God, I love Naked Gun movies. They, they do. Some of them don't yep. age well. Not especially, no. You ever watch the original TV series? Yeah. Yeah. All, like, five Peace episodes squad. of it or whatever? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I love the freeze frame. I think the show is actually aged... I think the show is actually aged better than the movies. Yes. Yeah. Like, the the, the TV show's fun. And the, the movies, you know, of their time. Yes. For sure. Yes. But, so. you know. But, but fun villains. Ricardo Montalban is in, what, the first one? Yeah. 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 So, but... Going back to the Rutland Parade, this is—it's just this is a period of time when comics were just fun for the sake of fun. Yeah, and and each of these each of these issues, 
you could read on its own, and it perfectly stands alone as an issue. Yes. And yet, you read them together, and there's just this infectious sense of how much fun all the creators were having in playing this little game and creating this little unofficial crossover between worlds. Yeah. It's and just the conceit of like a Halloween parade to draw it all together just because that's where they they actually went and spent their Halloweens. It's just right. so much fun. And it also just becomes so perfect because you then do have an excuse to draw a bunch of people wearing the other company's outfits in the background. Yeah. You just make it very clear, very clear. Okay, but this is the person costume. It's not actually Commando America or whoever. Power Girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's but Yeah. It's fun. Now, this was not the end of Rutland appearing in comics. No. Uh, in fact, it was an annual almost annual thing mm-hmm. through the 70s. Yeah, kind of falling off in 1975. Came back in 77. Yeah, a little bit. Part of it is apparently Mark um, Wolfen decided to start holding a big Halloween party at his place in in the city around that time. Mm-hmm. So that brought a lot of the creators who would have otherwise gone out to Rutland, kept them in, in town. Right. Um, so, so uh, and, and um, you want me to run down the list yes, of sort of the ones right that ahead. came next? Sure. So in 74, there's Avengers 119, Night of the Collector. That's a Steve Englehart, Bob Brown, Don Heck issue. Yeah, and Fagin turns um, out to be not be Fagin, but the Collector, right? Right, right. Then you've got Thor 232, Low, the Raging Battle, one of those great low titles. That's Jerry Conway, John Buscema, Dick Giordano, and Terry Austin. I haven't read that one, but but that's the next one in the, the sequence. After that... <coughs> We jump to a totally different company. Yeah. For the Gold Key Comics Occult Files of Dr. Spectre. Yeah. Gold Key, a comic company best known for its media tie-in comics, including right, right. the Star Trek comics where the, the the warp nacelles act more like rockets. Yep. Yep. And and so so it appears in it's it's Dr. Spectre number 18, Mask Macabre. That's from 1975 by Don Glutt and Jesse Santos. Don Glutt's a fascinating figure in the world of sort of comics and pop culture. Oh, he started out. He started out as an amateur filmmaker. He made like basically fan films at a time when that was not very common because film was expensive in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and so he made unauthorized adaptations of Superman, Spider-Man, The Spirit. Because some of his stuff got written up in Famous Monsters of Filmland, he was able to make contact with legit actors. So, like, when he wanted Frankenstein's monster in a film, Glenn Strange showed up to do it. Wow. But from there, he got into comics. He wrote Occult Files of Dr. Spectre. Other gold key comics were Dagar the Invincible and Trag and the Sky Gods. From there, he moved to Marvel. He wrote some Captain America, some Invaders, uh, some Star Wars, some What If. He worked for Warren on Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella. And he even, he was a screenwriter for a while. He did Saturday morning cartoons. He did Shazam, Land of the Lost, Spider-Man, Transformers, GoBots, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, DuckTales, Superpowers, Galactic Guardians, G.I. Joe, (laughs) X-Men. 
Ooh. He wrote the novelization for Empire Strikes Back. That is a resume. Yeah. He's still around. He's 79, lives in Texas. Last that I read, he was working for a company called Warrant, which was doing sort of a riff on old Warren Publishing type magazines. Okay. That makes sense. But but anyway, so Dr. Specter, we don't have to go through that whole issue. It came it came about years later, so it was 75. But similarly, the hero of the book, Dr. Specter, who's kind of this occult investigator, ends up in the town of Rutland during the Halloween parade and shenanigans ensue. Much like the stories we talked about, it's a case where one of the people at the party ends up possessed or mind-controlled or whatever, and a bunch of the the fantastical costumes end up turning into their real-world counterparts. Okay. So, very similar vibe. It's a little more of a horror mag than the others, mm-hmm. and so instead of superhero costumes, it's focused more on costumes of, like, Frankenstein's monster and a mummy and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, so that one happens. There's, in, in 77, it's entirely DC. Actually, through the late 70s, it's a it's a DC thing. Freedom Fighters number six is a Rutland issue. That's Bob Rosakis, Ramona Fraden, and Bob Smith. JLA 145 in 1977. That's another Steve Englehart, along with Dick Dillon and Frank McLaughlin. That's a Rutland issue. DC Superstars number 18 has a story set at Rutland. That's December, or no, sorry, that's January, February of 78. The DC book Ghosts, which was a horror anthology, had a Paul Kupperberg story in 1980 called All the Stages a Haunt, set at Rutland. That's in Ghosts 95. And then our, our pal J.M. DeMatteis brought it back briefly for Defenders number 100. In, in October of 81. Bringing it back for a 100th installment of something? that that That's just weird. Go figure, right? Yeah. A comic I have never heard of called Thunder Bunny from February of 86 in its fifth issue did a Rutland appearance. Oh, hey, Animal Man, number 50. Tom Veitch and Steve Dillon, 1992, did a Rutland issue. And as far as we know, The final appearances of the Rutland Halloween Parade in comics happened across 1996 and 1997 at Marvel Generation X number 22, All Hallows' Eve, by Scott Lobdell, Chris Piccolo, Al Vey, and Scott Hanna. And a year later, Superboy and the Ravers number 16, Half-Life of the Party, by Steve Mattson, Carl Kiesel, Josh Hood, and Dan Davis. Yep. I, I, you know, considering its history, I'm surprised like Rutland didn't show up as like a set piece during the JLA Avengers crossover. Yeah, that would have been fun. That would make sense, I think, considering it seems to be a thin point in the between the two universes. Right. So I, I sent you this the other day, James. Yeah. Um, there was an issue of What If. It was What If number twenty two from 1980, where a writer asked. This is in the letters page. Does Rutland, Vermont annually become a nexus of realities similar to that existing in the swamp near Citrusville, Florida? And the Watcher, and I'm not sure who who was the writer on What If 20? The editor would have been Grunewald. So it would been Grunewald Grunewald. answering this one. So Grunewald writing as the Watcher says, "While While the nexus in Citrusville 
is a natural aperture, the Nexus near Rutland is an artificial one that fluctuates in size and accessibility. For reasons I have not investigated, it has not been opened in recent years. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the most Grunewald answer ever. God, I love Grunewald so much. (laughs) We need to do more Grunewald books on this on this um, podcast and what's funny is he says that and at that point because that was that was 1980 right yeah at that point for the last several years it had been an entirely dc event hmm. he was right he was that that question came about at a point where since 70 from 77 to 80 it was all dc books yeah it's just funny yeah <laughs> and you know it it it's it's to, to be determined if it is going to appear in either Conk them again. I, I would love to see it happen. I, I think it's fun. I I am a hundred percent for comics doing Halloween issues. Absolutely, just in general. Yeah, and I especially love that there is this place in the world that all of these comics take place in, and I would love to see that continue. Yes, and as far as the actual Rutland parade, it's it's still ongoing. They took a few years off for COVID, but it's still ongoing. Sadly, Tom Fagan passed in 2008, but just a few weeks short of the parade. And unfortunately, they did not honor his request that if he were to die around the time of the parade, that his casket be made part of the parade. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he wanted that. Just because his daughter wasn't aware of that request until after the parade. But... It, it's not quite as superhero centric as it had has been in the past. Nowadays, I, I watched last year's because it is available on YouTube. There was a lot of pirates, like a lot of like pirates of the Caribbean, some zombies. Mm. There were some superheroes riding with the Vermont Republican Party people, which accounting for taste. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Now accounting for taste, but. It's still ongoing. As you said, this year they're putting out a statue. It's going to be on October 29th, which, of course, as the time of this release this episode is in the past, but is in the near future for us. So, Sure. They, they do have a website, if you're curious, just in the future. Uh, Rutlandrec.com mm-hmm. uh, is the, the community page. And from there, there's an events page where you can find the Halloween information. Yep. So still ongoing. Still a great tradition. If we had a little bit more, you know, this podcast made money. If this, I'm just saying, if Blue Apron were to come in and sponsor us, we would have recorded this episode from the Rutland Halloween Parade. This could have been the official Blue Apron Halloween road trip. There you go. And my muffler wouldn't have fallen Ooh. off. Damn it. <laughs> it might have been stolen by Felix Fausto. <laughs> but yeah. We decided to do this crossover because we love talking about weird little things. But it also, it felt appropriate for being a Halloween episode. And it felt somewhat appropriate for, it felt a big enough event, you know, and, and niche historically enough for us to right. be our 100th episode. And also, most importantly, and I, I cannot stress this enough, it is not an X-Men title from 1988 or 89. <laughs> No, it is not. It is decidedly not. It is decidedly not part of Inferno. Oh man! Yeah, it was definitely a, it was definitely a way to break from our Inferno coverage because woo. 
Yeah. Was, I mean, something completely different. Something. Different tone, different vibe. Right. And I suppose this is where we talk about the fact that, yeah, this is our 100th episode, Trey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we did a lot of weird stuff on this show. <laughs> <laughs> this included. I, I am somewhat glad that our 100th episode did not end up being yet another installment of our Verno coverage. Yes. Ooh. No, we, I, I, we talked a lot about how to schedule the Inferno event, and and we kind of went out of our way to pace it so that we would finish before 100. Yeah, and, and, and as in this case, we finished right before 100. Yep, yep. It's been a wild ride, man. Really yeah, wild ride. I mean, we have we have gone from being an index show to 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 borrow Michael Bailey's phrase, a non-index index show. <laughs> We have hung out with Roy Thomas. We met Joe Bob Briggs. We interviewed Diana Prince. Jan DiMatteis has come um, on the show twice. DiMatteis. Twice. Yep. Trace and Frank. Oh, God. We had Trace and Frank on the show. Just like, yeah. God. And uh, we, we, we've played games with David Gallagher. Ah. Uh, we, 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 we've met Shag in real life. I mean, not, 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 not in real life, yes. real life, but you know. Not, well, yeah. We've spoken. I'm still not convinced that Shag is not AI generated. <laughs> and you know, it, it's it's a show that's still evolving, and and we're still sort of figuring out what else we want to do with it. We've got a big long list of comics we want to talk about. Yeah, though. we do, and it's just we've come a long way since what was it, 2018? I am looking at the Cinepunks back catalog right now, and yeah, October 31st, 2018 was the pilot it's it's we, you know come a long way since you came to me with tears in your eyes a big manly man <laughs> telling me you know james i can't do this without you i need your expertise and charm and wit <laughs> why am i trump <laughs> <laughs> no, why, why am i alec baldwin playing trump because you're secretly the shadow eat of crime does bear bitter fruit <laughs> I honestly don't know. And just to be clear, guys, I, I asked him. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, I've had so much fun doing this show. And, I, and we'll continue to have fun doing yeah, this. Yeah, we're not um, ending it, guys, in case that's what it sounds like. No, this is not a, this is not like a, this is not a Make Ours Marvel situation where surprise at the end, we're done. <laughs> no, we, we are, we are going to keep going. We've got big plans for the future. Not, yeah. Not things I could talk about right now. Uh, sure, sure. But big plans. But we, we've got we've got plenty more weird Marvel monstery stuff to look at. We'll keep doing goofy stuff for April Fools, <laughs> or just Halloween episodes, or or sure because we're bored. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man! But guys, it has been our and you know some someday we'll even talk about Marvel zombies if I have to. I feel like it goes with the territory. Well, bring down the whole tenor of the show, Trey. Jesus. I don't want a podcast anymore. Dang. <laughs> Take that attitude. I'll start adding more McFarlane and Liefeld to the go! list. Go! Okay. Sorry. Yes, sir. Mmm. <laughs> Marvel Zombies. Mmm. Real good, sir. Yep. Mmm. Another please. Thank you. Oh, boy. But, yeah. Tomb Believers, and I do love calling you guys that. Thank you so much for sticking with us for 100 episodes. We we really appreciate you guys. We really do. Yeah. 
and we hope you'll stick with us for the next hundred. Indeed. And of course, you can reach us. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. We are on Blue Sky at Tomb of Ideas, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas, Instagram at Tomb of Ideas, and you know there's probably one I'm forgetting. Oh, Threads. Yeah, Threads at Tomb of Ideas. Because yep. just like everyone else, I forget and, Threads exists. And yeah, so what are your favorite moments from the first hundred episodes of Tomb of Ideas? Let us know. Is there a favorite episode, a favorite guest, a favorite story arc that we've covered? We'd love to hear about it. Ooh, I thought you were asking me for a second. I was like, I don't have anything, I don't have, I don't have anything prepared. What are, you, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to blindside you with that at the end of the uh, episode. Uh, oh, geez. Oh, ding. Oh, dear. And, of course, our entire back catalog, which I just looked up because I can't remember what we did 25 episodes ago. I barely remember what I did yesterday. Our back catalog is on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. You'll find all our episodes there, along with a lot of other great shows like Carnage Report, Twitch of the Death Nerve, Horror Business. As we are releasing this episode, Cineween 2023 is wrapping up. But you can find all kinds of great articles and podcasts about the Halloween season, horror movies, spooky stuff, all on Cinepunks.com. It's been great. And, and we hope you check it out. Spooky stuff, kids. <laughs> but, well, I guess until next time, Trey, um, until we start counting our podcasts in three digits, boy. Woo! Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tumors Excelsior! <laughs>